0: Daryl's been leading us through the book of James for the last few months. Uh, Aside from many of the intricate details of the book of James, he's he's been honing in on one theme in particular. Namely, is your faith a fraud? Do you possess true faith? Today I'd like to lead you through a passage in the Gospel of John. John chapter 15 that follows the exact same train of thought uh, that Daryl's been working through of discovering if our faith is genuine or not. Uh, It's a very dense passage with figurative and literal language weaving in and out with each other. Uh, But I hope in the short time that we have together, I can make things as clear as possible and provide us with some application for our daily lives. In John chapter 13, Jesus has already entered the upper room to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Uh, He begins what is commonly referred to as his upper room discourse. He teaches his disciples about the Holy Spirit, true love, and servanthood, among many other things. Toward the beginning of chapter 13, we see the betrayal of Judas consummate. On into chapter 14, teaching about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And at the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples the concept of abiding in him. And its rewards... And the consequences for those who do not abide in him. Starting at verse 1, John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Now, to set the context of where Jesus is right now, uh, In the last verse of chapter 14, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, Rise, let us go from here. So it appears that they've already left the upper room, and they're probably on their way to the Kidron Valley, which leads to the Garden of Gethsemane, which you see Jesus enter into later in in subsequent chapters. And nobody really knows exactly, but that's probably the most plausible answer, that it's possible he saw maybe a vine on his way to the Kidron Valley, and he used kind of that just-seen imagery to create a teaching about the nature of himself, his father, and his followers. In verse 1, Jesus identifies himself as the true vine. Some translations may say real vine. Either way, uh, Jesus' use of the term vine to a first century Jew would immediately bring Old Testament passages to mind, uh, such as Isaiah 5, Ezekiel 15, Ezekiel 19, Psalm 80, Hosea 10, and many others. Or Israel is described as Yahweh's vineyard or his vine, Yahweh being the personal name of God. Let's look at Isaiah 5, 1-7 for an example. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield wild grapes, I'm sorry, but he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command that the clouds, they rain no rain upon it for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Just as you see that Israel was depicted as the vineyard or vine of Yahweh. And they were faithless in doing what they were asked to do by God. Jesus says, I am the true vine and I am faithful to God in all things. Israel you might put it this way Israel was the type Christ is the anti type meaning anti type meaning the ultimate fulfillment of Israel itself what they were faithless to do Jesus was faithful to do Jesus in verse 1 then in verse 1 tells the disciples that his father is the vine dresser some translations may say gardener Uh, God the Father is the the one who takes care of the vine, the one who nurtures it, who supports the branches, making sure that all the sap gets to the vines and the vine is doing what it needs to be doing. He does this vine dressing through a process, what we know as pruning, which we're going to see in just a moment. Jesus then goes on to describe his followers as the branches, which is what I think to be the crux of this passage, the most important point. Among all the topics surrounding the vine metaphor, the main thing that Jesus wants to know from it is how a relationship with him is supposed to be sustained and lived out in the world in which we live through the process of abiding in him as well as the consequences for those who do not abide in him. Jesus says in verses 2 through 3, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit. He prunes that it may bear more fruit already. You are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, I first want to deal with the pruning part of this passage and come to the worthless branches later on because Jesus is going to bring them up a little bit later. So I want to take that issue up then. If you any of you know anything about gardening uh, or trimming vines or anything of that nature, uh, If you have a tree or a plant that's kind of weakening or withering and you go out there and you start cutting away at it, you start pruning it, uh, sometimes it can help it to bloom and blossom and become more fruitful than ever. I remember we have some crepe myrtles in our yard, and I remember a couple of years ago they were real thick and weren't looking very pretty. And I remember one day Brittany went out there, took the thinning shears, started cutting away at them. And uh, I came home from work and saw nothing but a naked bare tree, uh, really small. I thought they were just about dead. But uh, sure enough, in due time, they started blooming and they were more thick and more beautiful than ever. And they're probably some of the thickest trees we have uh, in our yard right now. So I really appreciate her work there. It's saving me some yard work. so, But the pruning she did, provided the necessary means to give the tree what it needed so that it be, may become fruitful and even, you might say, more fruitful. The word prune, as used in verse 2, is the Greek word kathere, or literally to make clean. And the Greek word uh, in verse 3, clean, is... Uh, is the word katharoi. They mean the same thing in Greek. They're just being used in different tenses. So in effect, Jesus is saying, my father makes clean those who bear fruit and you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Or you might say it the other way around. My father prunes those who bear fruit and you are already pruned because of the word I have spoken to you. He's kind of using a play on words here, which is unfortunately lost in a lot of our English translations so those who are bearing fruit for God's glory will experience a further pruning by God so that they may bear even more fruit the pruning process may be tough it may be trials it may be temptations but nevertheless enduring these trials and temptations will produce fruit in the life of the believer and what kind of fruit does God have in mind here well simply put uh, not to reduce it to this, but just to provide some sort of uh, clarity. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Continuing on in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So Jesus is saying here that even to begin to bear fruit, we must abide in him. It's not even possible to begin to bear fruit unless we are abiding in him, much less later fruit from a pruning from the Father. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, whenever we see phrases in the Bible such as, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, we have to remember that verses like this and really any verse in the Bible means what it means within a particular context. Jesus is not saying here that, If you want a big house, nice cars, lots of money, I'm just going to start dishing it out to anyone who asks. No, 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 no. Uh, That is not what Jesus is saying here. The context is life in him abiding in Him, bearing fruit in particular, and so proving ourselves to be His disciples. He says, you want to bear more fruit or anything else that will glorify my Father? Ask it in my name, and it will be given to you, because He will answer that prayer. Going on now to what it means to actually abide in Christ. What are some ways that we can abide in Christ? And to start, the word abide it doesn't just mean to just kind of sit there remaining connected to the vine and not doing anything. No, it has more of an active quality to it, a sort of continuing active role of pulling in the nutrients that only the vine can give. There are almost countless ways that we can abide in Christ, but for the sake of time, I just want to focus on two ways, just two. Number one is prayer. Prayer is absolutely an essential way of abiding in Christ. Sometimes I think about my prayer life and I'm just embarrassed. I really am. I'm embarrassed. And I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way sometimes. Um, It seems like every time I go to God, I'm either just asking for something or I'm just giving him a quick prayer of thanks on the way to work or from work for getting me through my tough day. And, uh, you know, for me, that's just not the kind of spirit-sustaining, joy-filling prayer that comforts me that I'm actually abiding in Christ. I look at the example of Jesus himself, our Lord, when he says in Mark where it says in Mark one thirty five, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Luke five. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, going out to pray. You know, that just boggles our minds to think about that. Uh, But, you know, Jesus wanted to pray and, dare I say, needed to commune with his Father. I think sometimes as Christians who have a very robust theology of the divine nature of Christ, we can awfully downplay the significance of his earthly prayer life. But Jesus prayed. Jesus went out to desolate places, he prayed. And if our master, our the God in the flesh, played, how much more should we pray? Set aside time, uninterrupted prayer time, and pray. I once heard a story about John Wesley, one of the great preachers of the eighteenth century, and it said about him Wesley went to dinner with a guy who was at the time the greatest writer in the English literature. And the guy says to Wesley Now you've finished dinner. Let's fold our legs under the table and have a nice time of conversation. Wesley said, I'm sorry, I have to go. But it's not yet 9 o'clock. Why are you going? Wesley said, I have an appointment tomorrow at 4 o'clock in the morning. At 4 o'clock in the morning, the man said, with whom? With God. With God. Every morning, 4 o'clock, he was on his knees, on his face. Praying. Brothers and sisters, I I cannot stress the importance of prayer enough for you. It is the place where you will find the greatest times of sorrow and the greatest times of triumph. It's one of the best places for you to get strength for your Christian life. I heard a man once say, give me one week with a man, just one week, and I will tell you how strong he is by how much he prays. One week, and he'll see your strength by how much you pray." Finding time for quiet, uninterrupted prayer can be tough. I know this. Trust me. Uh, especially in the super busy society in which we live here in the United States. But I must ask, us: is, is our schedule, or our busyness controlling us? Or are we being controlled by the love of Christ in prayer? A second essential way of abiding in Christ is having regular fellowship with other believers. There's a special unity of believers in Christ with Christ himself. Let me say that again. There's a special unity of believers in Christ with Christ himself. The New Testament is filled with passages that stress the importance and even the necessity of fellowshipping one with another. Look at Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. And the prayers. Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. Not neglecting to meet together. As is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near that great day. And another passage from Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I know also how difficult it can be to coordinate with other believers, to actually get together to fellowship. But that's one of the primary reasons we have life groups. Daryl and the elders have gone above and beyond in trying to make life groups accessible and fruitful for all of us. And I know it may be hard and a huge sacrifice, but we've got to be thinking with an eternal perspective and not a temporal one. Remember the words I just read. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you, he's talking to us, You to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do we take the Bible seriously when it stresses the huge importance of prayer? I'm sorry, of fellowship. Do we consider the amazing help that fellowship gives us in killing sin in our personal lives? Do we even care about our sin in our hearts and seeing that fellowship will help drive that out? Do we rejoice in fellowship with other believers? Are we committed to ourselves or are we committed to each other? I want to move on now to the other part of Jesus Vine Discourse. Who are the branches that are taken away for not bearing fruit? There's no question that this is an extremely hard passage, not just to understand but even also to accept. Um... Jesus has already given assurance to his followers that abide in him by telling them they're already clean because of the word he's spoken to them. But those who do not abide in him, who do not bear fruit, Jesus says they're taken away. Some translations even say they're cut off. They're thrown away like a dead branch and they wither. They're gathered up in a pile and they're thrown into the fire and they're burned. Here's the picture. On a vine, you've got... A vine, you've got lots of branches, grapes shooting out. Some are fruitful, some are not. The ones that are fruitful are not fruitful. They just hang there devoid of grapes. They're not taking in any of the nourishing sap from the vine, so they wither and they are totally useless. And Christ says it is those branches that are the ones that the Father takes away. In other words, he cuts or breaks them off. They're thrown out and they await fire. I firmly believe that this passage, this warning passage, is for Christians. I looked at a lot of commentaries on this because it's a tough passage and to see what other guys had to say. And a lot of them couldn't make heads or tails of it either way. A lot of them just kind of dodged it. Uh, But they just couldn't seem to make much sense of it because it is hard to understand. But I submit to you, it is for all who call themselves Christian. Many Christians wonder, well, then how can they be in Christ and still be thrown away and reserved for fire? Uh, What about the passages where Jesus says, no one will snatch you out of my hand? You know, how can we make these things fit? Did they lose their salvation? What's exactly going on here? The people Jesus is referring to here are those who think that they know Christ, but who never really knew Christ in the first place. Let me put it this way, in a kind of theological language. They're only in Christ positionally, but not salvifically. Does that make sense? They have an appearance or a position of being in Christ, but they have no real salvation, no true saving faith. As heartbreaking as it is and as dreadful as it is to think about, it's very possible and even probable that there are Christians... Uh, in this church service right now, who may be one of these people. They may profess to know Christ. They may pay their taxes. They don't cheat on their wives or their husbands. They don't curse. They go to church. They may even pray before meals. But they have no real relationship or love for Christ. They're not abiding in Him. They're not taking in the nutrients that only Christ can and does give. They're having no communion with Christ. Their hope ultimately lies within themselves for gaining entrance into the kingdom of God and ultimately they have no hope. I do not say these things lightly. This is serious business. And and just to show you that this this kind of warning is not just some kind of flash in the pan, I want to take you to some other scriptures that speak in the same vein. Romans 8.13 If you live according to the flesh you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Finally, Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we can clearly see from these passages that the Bible gives warning to those who may, Christians in particular, who may be living in secret sin and their ensuing judgment. But the Scripture also gives warning to those who just have no real love for Christ. And that's what I want to turn to now. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 22. It says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. The Apostle Paul saying this, this isn't me. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. When I was writing this message, well, let me back up. For the Christian who says to him or herself, I'm not living in sin. I live a pretty moral life. What, what have I got to fear, you know? Let me tell you something. If you do not love the Lord, the Bible says you are cursed. When I was writing this message and began to go through it, my heart literally just about sank in my stomach. Because I realize the gravity of these words. If anyone, anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Let that person be cut off from the Lord. I remember Daryl saying that here in the United States, and especially in the Southeast, it is so difficult to find out where people actually are spiritually in their lives. We have to ask them, yes, but do you really love Jesus to try to dig into their heart and pull out? And I totally agree with him on this point. In America, most people will tell you that they're Christian, but we know that's not true. A million aborted babies every year shatters that testimony. So when trying to ask them, ask someone, do you really love Jesus? I would venture to say that with such a question, most people become dismissive or either very apprehensive but asking about a real love for Christ may be the only way you can dig into their heart and find out where their treasure truly lies where does your treasure truly lie today where is your love and loyalty today is it for Christ is it for the son of God Christ or is it for yourself so to what is God calling all those who call themselves Christian today? He's calling them to a sincere love for Christ. He's calling you to a sincere love for Christ. We can't just think that we're all fine and dandy because we don't look at pornography. Maybe we don't smoke. We don't drink. We don't use drugs. We must be more than that. We must truly love Jesus. In closing, there are two people in mind here. There's the one who abides in the vine, who feeds on Christ, loves Christ, receives the sap, the nutrients that lead to fruit bearing and life so that the one may bear even more fruit and glorify God and prove himself to be Christ's disciple. And there's the one who bears no fruit who's thrown out and burned. Some of you may be more assured in your faith than ever right now. And I, re- I praise God. You can say with confidence, I love Jesus. I do. I love Jesus. You're not being prideful, but you're just confident that God is working in your life. You know that your love for Jesus is genuine. But some of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, We might just tell ourselves, no, I don't have a real love for Christ. And this is for you this morning. I don't want to leave you with this, but considering the branches that are cut off, I want you to listen to a poem by a guy named D.H. Lawrence, who picked up on the passage in Hebrews 10 about how fearful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. And listen as he talks about how fearful it is to fall out Of the hands of the living God. Quote, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but it is a much more fearful thing to fall out of them. Did Lucifer fall through knowledge? Oh, then pity him, pity him that plunged. Save me, O God, from falling into the ungodly knowledge of myself as I am without God. Let me never know, O God. Let me never know what I am or should be when I have fallen out of your hands, the hands of the living God, that awful and sickening, endless sinking, sinking through the slow, corruptive levels of disintegrative knowledge when the self has fallen from the hands of God and sinks, seething and sinking, corrupt and sinking, still in depth after depth, of disintegrative consciousness sinking in the endless undoing, the awful catabolism into the abyss even of the soul fallen from the hands of God. Save me from that, O God. Let me never know myself apart from the living God." Brothers and sisters, the Bible can give us extremely hard things to swallow sometimes, but swallow them we must. It's not a game. It's not a game. I know that these aren't always fun concepts to think about, but they are real. They're real. And let me emphasize something to you. These warning passages, passages, they're not just there to paralyze you to the point of despair and fear. No, they are there to fill us with or inspire us to genuine repentance and sincere love for Christ. Let me say that again. They're not there to paralyze us and drive us to despair. They're there to inspire us, to repent, to put on Christ, to love Him. The idea of cutting God cutting off people from the vine who call themselves Christian is not there to make you hopeless and not just give up and say, I know I don't love the Lord like I should. I should just give up and I'm just going to reserve myself for fire. No, no, no. It is there to spur you on repentance and godly sorrow. To make you evaluate yourself and see where your love truly lies today. With the hope that any misplaced love that might be in you, you'll recognize it and give all of your love to Christ. And I mean All of your love to Christ. He is worth it. He's worth it. Do you think that God enjoys cutting off people from the vine? No. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. Anyone declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Turn and live. And live. There is hope, brothers and sisters. God is a God of grace. And He will show mercy to those who put their full faith in Him. God is calling you right now to put on Christ. He's calling you to love Him. To truly love Him. To abide in Him. To bear fruit for His kingdom so that you may glorify God and prove yourself. Prove yourself to be His disciple. This picks up on exactly the same line of what Daryl preached on last week. You say you have faith? Show me. Show me that faith. Let me see it. Those who are cold in their love for Christ right now, God is calling you this morning Turn from your sin or yourself and love Christ. Turn to Him and love Him, love Him, love Him, love Jesus, people. My hope this morning is that all of us can joyfully sing with the psalmist in Psalm 73 when he says, To God, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, O God. Do we believe that God Himself, that Christ Himself is our treasure? That He's our inheritance? Do we believe this? Do we love Christ do we love Christ? I hope so. I hope so. Let's pray. Father, we do, we are faced with hard things from your word, but they are real. We see your Son high and lifted up, the one whose blood was shed on the cross for our sins. The One who is our only hope. A lot of us can grow so cold in our love for Christ. And a lot of us may not even have any love for Christ. Maybe we just don't care. But God, may You change our hearts. May we put on Christ today. May we love Him more and more as we have never loved Him before. We desire You, O God. There's nothing on earth that we desire besides You. May this be the cry of our hearts. And we love you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.